This is Sergio Vega from Quicksand, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I'm your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show this week, we've got Tristan Schoen of Author and Punisher. And if you don't know Author and Punisher by now, you really should. Tristan has been doing his thing for a long time now, and he's got a really interesting story, and we cover all of it. His origins on the East Coast, moving out to the West Coast, leaving his job in engineering to pursue the arts and music, touring stadiums with Tool, the new gear he's working on. There's a lot here. It's a great conversation, and that's coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We've got shirts for sale at Death Wish Inc. Short sleeve, long sleeve, logo tees, a custom design shirt. You name it. Search the new scene at Deathwish Inc. in the store. You'll see the fine selection of shirts. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. Reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you write a nice review, I'll read it on the air. Also, you can catch me starting this week out with the Darling Fire. We're doing a week of shows in the southeast with spotlights and that tour kicks off june 9th in miami head to new scene pod on instagram or the darling fire on instagram for more information also don't forget to support iodine recordings jerome's dream is on tour right now and i just caught that tour last night in brooklyn and let me tell you it's one of the best shows i've seen in a long time so if you can catch one of those dates Make sure you do it. I'll talk about that show more at the end of the show, so make sure you stay tuned. For a full list of tour dates, head to Jerome's Dream Forever on Instagram. The Iron Roses and One Line Drawing are playing the Motor City Pride Festival in Detroit. The Iron Roses play on June 10th, and One Line Drawing plays on June 11th. For more information, check out MotorCityPride.org. Audio Karate. A Show of Hands EP is available now for pre-order, and the new single of the same name is available to stream now everywhere. Sign up for the Iodine email list. You'll find out about everything first. For more information, head to the Iodine Instagram at Iodine Recordings or to the Iodine website at iodinerecordings.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Deathwish Inc., Deathwish is running a contest on their Instagram to win tickets to New Friends Fest. Follow Deathwish Inc. and New Friends DIY on Instagram, then find the post on the Deathwish page, tag at least two friends, and you could win tickets to this excellent fest. Converge! Axe to Fall Vinyl Repress is up. Make sure you get your hands on that. Pre-order your copy today. Loma Prieta. Last. It's coming out June 30th. Have you heard the singles, Glare and Circular Saw? I have. They're great. I think this is going to be easily one of the best releases 
of 2023. Can't wait to hear the rest of that record. For more information, head to the Death Wish Instagram at Death Wish Inc. or to the Death Wish website at deathwishinc.com. Okay. Check back in with me in segment three. I'll talk about the Jerome's Dream gig that I attended. I'll tell you everything that's going on with me. But first, we are going to speak to Tristan Schoen of Author and Punisher. Enjoy. All right, we are here now with Tristan Schoen. Tristan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, Tristan, it's wonderful to have you here. You know, you've done a lot. You're doing a lot. You're on Relapse Records now. You put out an excellent record last year. You're touring the world. You've been playing stadium shows with Tool. You're doing it all. And you know what? We're going to cover all that stuff. But first, I need to ask you a question. How are you doing today? Well, today I actually have, um, you know, when you first get back from tour, you're sort of uh, first in this euphoric state of I'm back, the weather's nice, I'm in San Diego, and after about, and you're playing video games and hanging out with your family, and then very quickly, world starts to collapse on you, and that's where I'm at right now. So <laughs> <laughs> when you say the world collapses on you, is it just like what next tour coming up emails? The truth, my tour is, uh, I have a tour in June, but that one's, it's more, I've got some projects coming up, uh, building some gear. And, uh, on top of that, some family visits, some yard trauma, you know, all, all sorts of like different things like that. So it's a balance. It's the balancing act. And I work as an engineer in a research facility. So it's um, the balancing. The balancing act has gotten harder. I see. Yeah, it can be really hard at times, you know, uh, working the day job, doing the music stuff, everything. It's a it's a constant juggling act. And you have a family, too. What's your family structure? Oh, I have. A, I say family. I'm married. I have a wife and I have a dog. Oh, and uh, my my family is on the East Coast, but they're it's like everybody's visiting next month, which is very exciting for me because I get to share a lot of things that I love about this town with them. So I'm pretty excited about that. 
Now, when your family visits, do they stay with you? Yeah. Is that stressful for you? Uh, no, no, it's great. I love it. We love hosting. I like making pizza. I like barbecuing and, you know, showing my favorite restaurants. Now that we can go out to restaurants again, it's it's, it's exciting. The last time my parents came, we, we were kind of like stuck at home, you know, because of COVID. You have a house? Yeah, I have a house uh, kind of near the SDSU, which is the state. Uh, actually, the one that got to the final this year in basketball at university. That sounds nice. Now, you mentioned video games. Now, this is a very important topic to me. What kind of games do you, or what games are you playing? Well, I'm not, I'm a late bloomer to the gaming world, maybe six years ago. But uh, being a computer guy, my wife's a big gamer. And so she got me into, I think I started with Horizon and then I like God of War and then I moved on to like, you know, Dark, Dark Souls 3 and Elden Ring and Sekiro. I'm playing Elden Ring right now. I just started Elden Ring. It's my first time ever playing a FromSoft game. Ooh. And I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm learning and I'm really enjoying it. And I know it's starting to take hold of me because I dreamed about the game the other night. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll do that. I mean, it's it's such a dark game that I, I love the sort of... The writers have such a a dark humor. I always find it to just be like so sad and that it's funny, you know, and those are the types of movies that I like too. So it's like, I just giggle the whole time I'm, I'm dying, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I, it's a, it's a good vibe. Like I got trapped in some basement that you can't get out of. And there was an enemy that was, I had no chance of beating. So I lost all of my uh, souls or grace or whatever it is that you carried around. And I just had to let it go. Yeah. 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 You just, you just kind of have to let it go sometimes. You know, I love, I love the format. I love that this one's open world because you can sort of explore. Um, and you know, you're not, you're not like in this narrow pathway, like a maze where you have to beat a boss or you're just totally effed. So I'm like, I like that you can, you can build up your strength and come back. Um, and that's a change from some of the previous souls games you know yeah i'm a pretty seasoned gamer and it's i'm still getting used to that because even in red dead redemption 2 like that's open but there's also missions you have to complete but you just open your map and it kind of tells you where to go and what to do elden ring does not do that (laughs) it's just you just got to run somewhere and see if you're going to get killed or not i still don't know what the point of the game is like we kind of do it as a couple like my wife will sit um her name's marilia but she'll sit on the couch and like with her laptop Cause she plays her own games, but she's more into like the, yeah, like red dead and, um, Oh God, why can't I think of it? GTA. Um, and so this vibe is like, she gets on her laptop and we're fully like researching how to do things. And so she's more, she's more like the, the navigator and I'm the pilot, you know, that sounds fun. I like that. Yeah. Now you mentioned you were uh, building some machinery. This is something I wanted to ask about because Obviously, you have a very unique setup, and uh, I was wondering if you ever get commissioned to build stuff, you know, the type of instruments you use for others. I've had offers before, and, you know, they weren't, I should say, it never really came to fruition. I've had a lot of people sort of reach out, and but recently I, I'm working with an artist, Arca. Um, she's a electronic musician um, who's had like a produced for Bjork in the past and also like Kanye West and FK Twigs and some, some pretty big names. Like she's an amazing producer and performer. Um, and so I, she rent sort of rented and I, I teched um, the, my instruments for her at some festivals last year. 
And um, so anyway, we're, that got me on this path of um, for my company, Drone Machines, which is basically a, a boutique company that we've started now based around my instruments that is still hasn't really got up and running yet. We're still like in the prototyping phase of manufacturing and making the electronics. So, uh, so yeah, I don't want to give, I can't talk about some of it, but uh, yeah, that's kind of where it's at. I'm building some new things for myself. Um, I'm building some things that are custom for somebody. And then I'm building some, uh, a new set of things that I think will be useful for more of the electronic world. Uh, controllers, you know, but these are also synthesizers now. They make their own sound. So they're not just these uh, input mechanisms. So this artist you're working with used your actual stuff? Yeah, like my old larger stuff um, at Primavera in Los Angeles and then uh, Portero, which was a festival like uh, at the port on the docks in San Francisco, like a big electronic music festival. Is that weird at all when they use your stuff? Are you like, oh, no, are they going to do like my thing? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I get that question a lot. And I am just, for me, this is such an obvious um, direction for electronic, live electronic music to go in. That it's just inevitable that people are going to be using more tactile, you know, controllers that are larger. So really, that's all I'm doing. I, I have my own aesthetic and sort of artistic input that I think is unique. But, you know, I basically just make stuff bigger. That makes sense because, you know, even if someone has the same equipment, it's not going to be you. Like if someone asks me about podcasting stuff, I tell them exactly what I use. It's not going to be me doing it. Yeah, I I really don't. I I don't have any. I'm sure there would be some instance where I would get annoyed um, (laughs) with the way someone might use something. uh, But In general, I feel like if there's going to be more user interaction with electronic music, I think that's a good thing because right now there's a lot of, and I have no problem with this, a lot of people pressing play and singing over it, you know, and, you know, you saw Coachella live feed last week and that's fine. These are amazing singers, performers, they do their, they do other stuff Um, and it's electronically produced music. So you're not going to replay that hundred percent live and maybe with some hip hop, I've seen it done and that's cool to have a live drummer and live keyboardist bass player but some of this stuff is so glitchy and and synthetic and created in you know you can't create that live again so that i understand but there are ways to sort of interact with it that don't involve your fingers touching a little half inch diameter knob you know there's things that i don't think that's a natural way for your body to move you know i think if it's if it's a little bit bigger i think it will feel better for you, like you're actually in a machine shop operating tools. Um, And also from the audience perspective, I think it will be more entertaining for people. It is because something is lost when, you know, all respect to any artist who does this, but just for me personally, if someone's just hitting play and kind of singing over stuff, it, it doesn't have the same feel as if they're actually operating things, you know, whether it be the MIDI controllers and the machinery you're using or turntables or instruments or something like that. So I I really think that those elements add a lot to the performance. Yeah, I think so too. And that's what we're trying to do. And I'm actually, uh, I'm doing my best to not have that many more shows this year because, uh, which is tough at the end of an album cycle, you, you tend to get some bigger opportunities for festivals 
that may not have heard of you before. Um, you know, the touring starts to kind of trail off a little bit for your headlining shows, you know, because the, the album's not fresh anymore, but you start to get some opportunities with like festivals and things. And that's sort of, I'm trying not, I'm trying to say no to as much of it as I can, because I want to, I really want to focus on this gear thing also because, you know, I want to, the next time I go out for the next album, I, I want to have some, some fresh, you know, instrumentation to play with. So I'm really focusing on that this year. That's good. You know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're, uh, doing some manufacturing of this stuff now, Tristan. I had a whole vision, you know, I was like, oh, he should have a company where he makes this stuff and maybe get into some like boutique guitar pedal stuff. And, you know, it could be a whole thing. So it, it sounds like it's going in that direction. Yeah, it's it, we have it set up right now. It's Drone Machines. You can go to Instagram and search for, uh, I think it's underscore Drone Machines, underscore. And then our website's dronemachines.com. But it's still sort of just a splash page for now because we're, building the store up and you know with the uh, a lot of our we have working prototypes that i'm using and that we have an electronics person and a uh, programmer and a synth guy and another mechanical engineer all working you know at night you know around our other jobs so um, time will tell if this can become a full-time job or if it's just going to sort of stay as a a passion project. You said you still work as an engineer? Yeah, I work at, um, at UCSD, which is the other big university here. Um, I live near SDSU and I work at UCSD, uh, which is near the ocean, um, La Jolla. And it's uh, a microscopy lab, which uh, is, I sort of do, this, I do mechanical engineering. So I work on these big electron microscopes and um, with physicists and, and microbiologists and they take data. It's a lot of bi biological specimens like mice. We, we look, it's mostly like a brain research lab, like neuro, um, neuroscience. So we look at a lot of mice brains because it's, wow. they sort of, we can learn a lot about human brains from the mouse brain because it's a lot smaller. How long have you been doing that gig? I know you got out of engineering and, you know, got into performing a while ago. So when did you get back into this? Well, yeah, that's sort of like something that's been going around is like part, it was like part of the sort of, I don't know, the, the lore of author and punisher was that I, I left engineering and which is true. I did in 2004, I, I went, I applied to grad school for art and I came to UCSD for art school. And that's when I started author and punisher. Cause I was in art school sort of like, Oh, I have all this time now. I'm an artist making like robotic sculpture and stuff. And I made the drone machines. That was my first like time I built that stuff. But when I got out of there three years later, I sort of was faced with, okay, I can be a professor, you know, because my A, author and publisher, I can't make my living off of that yet. Still can't, to be honest. Um, and then I could... Uh, you know, I could work as a, you know, maybe an adjunct professor. My art, well, I'm not like famous enough to be a, an art professor at a big university. So I'd have to work as like an adjunct professor, which is a nice job, but it doesn't make that much money. And uh, I just, I, I sort of had this opportunity to work in this lab as a uh, mechanical engineer doing um, like automation robotics. I just met these guys randomly on campus. I don't even remember how I met them. Yeah, yeah. There was an artist... That I was work that I was working for, who was doing a visualization of a mouse brain on a giant wall LCD wall, and she needed she wanted some help with that, so she was looking for a grad student, and I and I 
I reached out and then I talked to the actual people who run the lab and they're like, oh no, you're a mechanical engineer. We have other stuff for you to do. <laughs> but what I realized was working at a working in academia for on tech was much more rewarding and less painful than working for a a giant company in a tech park, you know. Yeah. And the campus is beautiful. The hours are flexible. The people are interested in science. They're not trying to make they're not trying to climb the ladder in the same way that they were in, in the private sector. And you've been doing this type of stuff your whole life, right? Like even as a kid, you're building things, you're creating things, yes? Yep. I was in something called Olympics or Odyssey of the Mind, which was a total nerd fest, but um, yeah, kind of mixed theater and engineering. It mixed theater and engineering. Yeah, you'd have to come up with like a play, but then at the same time, you'd have to like, it would be like one year, it would be like ping pong balls or tennis balls, and you have to like move all these tennis balls from here to here without them touching the ground. But this one, you'd have to shoot them through a hole. So you'd have all these like kind of, you know, sort of techie problem solving tasks. One other one was paper airplanes. And so another one was bridge building. There was always like something and we'd have like a, you know, it'd be like the village people would be our theme or something. I mean, this was like from first grade through 12th grade for me. And were you just always uh, skilled in this area? Um, I liked gadgets. I liked, I wasn't like a super um, like programmer kind of nerd, although I did do some programming pretty early. My mom got me into like programming like logo and early Apple IIc stuff. But I was more like into the electromechanical, like little motors operating. I made like little robotic cars and stuff like that. And, um, and then when I got into college at RPI, which is in Troy, New York, Rensselaer, uh, I was like on the electric car team. And I actually met an artist there who was in the art program who was using tech and doing sort of like different robotic art installations. And, and uh, he really changed the way I, th I thought about engineering. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't have to just build some like liquid uh, delivery system for like, you know, microscope slides or something, you know, like, or just like some automation and telecom or semiconductor. Cause to me, it was just like so boring, you know, Talk about your relationship with music. Did you uh, get into like punk rock, hardcore, metal, all of it? Where? What's your trajectory with that? Uh, I grew up in a rural neighborhood or a rural town near UNH in New Hampshire, uh, which is sort of like you know, about 45 minutes from the coast. And there's only like 12 miles of coastline in New Hampshire. So it's like um, this southern, southeastern New Hampshire. And so there really wasn't much of like, uh, it was very rural. The closest house was like, you know, quarter mile from me, maybe, yeah, quarter mile from me. So I didn't have, like, I knew about all the hair metal bands. This was like in the ninety, but I didn't, and Led Zeppelin, but I'd never even heard of Black Sabbath. Like my dad didn't know, didn't listen to that. It's mostly like the, the, the sixties, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Neil Young and stuff, which I love. But then when I, I got into um, high school, I had to go to another town because there was no high school in my town. So I started riding with other kids and I met up with like, and I heard WUNH was playing, uh, uh, they had the pit, which was like their Sunday night metal show. And I remember hearing that and hearing Sepultura. And that was like, it just caught me, you know, like nobody in my family listened to metal at all. It was just like, I knew it. I was like, Oh man, what's that? And I called the radio station, you know, 
Um, and then from then it was like Melvin's Fugazi helmet, all those bands ministry that I heard God flesh. And then it was like from there, like quicksand neurosis, his hero's gone. Those types of bands, all that really like kind of dark apocalyptic stuff. Oh, no, quicksand isn't like that, but, um, they're just uh, universal, and you know, yeah. like everybody, everybody likes them, or they should. Oh, those two albums are just amazing. So, uh, when did you start performing? When did you decide you wanted to do that? Well, I was always playing piano in high school, like, and I, I had a band with some friends, and we were kind of did some Cure covers and stuff. But then I, I started playing bass, and sort of had like my was this band called Godhead Silo that was like. And they were like a bass and drums band. I was always trying to do that, like a really heavy, simple. Um, and then I got an SR, Elisis SR16, which was a drum machine, maybe like 92, 91. And no, no, sorry. Yeah, mid 93, 94. And um, I started programming and playing guitar with that. And that was really cool because I really liked Godflesh uh, Selfless album. And I, so I was like writing these like drum beats. And that really. I had a band called Empathy Test with – there's a new band called Empathy Test, but this this was a different one um, – with this guy, Sean McCumber, who was actually a writer for Decibel now and many other – but he and I had a band together. And then when I went to college at RPI, I had a band called Falkirk that kind of played with the hardcore bands there, like One King Down and uh, Section 8. And I think we opened for Snapcase once because the Misfits were he- canceled and – and then I went to Boston, had a band that never really went anywhere. And then there was Author and Punisher. So I n- had never really toured that much other than a couple Northeast shows. And uh, you were doing just like straight guitar and drums with Author and Punisher before it segued to uh, all the, the machinery you use now, correct? Yeah. Yep. So talk about uh, kind of developing into what it was now. Was there a moment, you know, I know uh, you were working as an engineer And you were kind of disillusioned with that because, well, you know, the more corporate lifestyle is not the most fun. I know I I did it for a very long time and I still do it, but I'm like fully remote now. So it's also like I'm not doing it, which is cool. But then uh, you met this artist, right, who inspired you and uh, just kind of showed you that you you could kind of meld the two worlds. He took me to, I think in 2000 or 2001, he took me as his assistant to Helsinki, Finland for this big art show. Um, and he was a professor at RPI and it was this sort of, it was sort of a retro, like real to real, you know, like early computer technology. It kind of looked like one of those server rooms that you'd see in the sixties and like Bell Labs or something. And it was, but it was kind of broken. So it sort of had this, so it was sort of commenting and there were all these artists at this showcase and they were all these robotic, you know, installations, like little heads that would talk to you and like these vines that would like move in this room that had sensors on them. I was just blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, I got introduced to all this stuff. And so, um, and there was also these DJs and like, everybody was like creative and wacky and like, we'd go out and like party. And it was just like, Oh, this is what I want my life to be. You know, in addition to the, I'd already been going to hardcore shows and I love that world too, but there was something lacking in that world that, you know, I don't think I could just be a straight up musician um, which is fine. I just, my, my mind wants to develop like stuff and wants to be more creative. And if, um, if, if it's just music, it doesn't do it. So 
so yeah, I, that that's where I, I decided to go back to UC. I started to apply to grad school, and I went back to UCSD, and that's where I, uh, you know, sort of I had to sit in critiques with other artists and, and come up with ideas and hear what their opinions were. And I'm really glad I did it because it made me it made me more critical uh, of art and think about it in ways other than just like, oh, that's cool, you know, like oh, that's a fire breathing dragon, that's cool. But no, you have to think about it like you know, in the context of what other people have done and why I don't want to be pretentious uh, because I know a lot of people think that contemporary art is pretentious and a lot of it is, but there are some pretty clever things in there that are based on literature and films and, and uh, anyway, so that, that, that was really good for me to go through that process. When you went back to school and you're in the art school, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in your mind, like something in art? Did you think you were going to focus on music? Did you know at that time? No, I, I was actually just pl- sort of playing because I had brought the tracks for the Painted Army with me to San Diego from New Hampshire and uh, like mixed them out here. And I found a drummer um, in town, Bill Driscoll, and he, he sort of helped me uh, finish the album. And so he and I, he was playing drums, I was playing guitar. We sort of like, I would like play in the courtyard of the art program and, you know, try to perform in town a little bit. And I started doing shows at the Casbah as a two piece. And then I got a different guitar player and wrote my second EP called War, or the second thing called War Cry in like 2005 or something. And right about then, I had done these sort of like, I had all these sort of like visceral, sculptural projects that i was making and there was one where it would like cut your it was like biometrics thing where it would like cut your finger and then it would scan your finger every day and then if it saw that your finger was still cut it wouldn't cut it but if it saw that it was um healed it would slice it again um i think i called that like peripheral pain or something it was supposed to be like a little usb device that you would just you know walk into the office and scan your thumb it was just for sort of like a comment on you know, corporate life or something. So I was sort of doing these like, you know, pound your head against the wall. Um, and none of them were particularly good. And, you know, some people in the critiques say, oh, it's all right. You know, like, um, but for me showing, I'd have to show these in these group shows. I was like, I'm making this thing and then I don't get to play with it. You know, like I make this complicated, like electromechanical thing that I'm proud of. It's engineered and I machined all the parts and programmed it, but I don't get to play with it. And so when I, I, I came up with this idea to make this, I was building speakers. Oh yeah, sorry. That's what I forgot to mention. There was another artist in the program, Matt Hope, and he's a very influential artist for me and a good friend. And he was building like speakers and he came from the UK, like these like sound system, reggae, dub, rave culture. And he helped me build some subwoofers. So I sold my guitar amp and, speakers and we built all our own stuff and that was that was that was like a huge like turn for me to like oh i can build all this stuff so i built a huge sound system with these subwoofers and then i was like trying to play guitar with tapping it you know and then playing the drums with my right hand like pressing the buttons live and it just sort of occurred to me i was like well, why don't i just make this like throttle that you could do like you know change the pitch with and that's how it started so at that point, it's just you performing with the, the speakers that you're building and kind of tr- trying to make something out of it. Yeah, and sort of doing the guitar thing with the other guy. But after a little, after I sort of realized 
I mean, part of it was like when I would show up with the band, it was one thing, you know, it'd have some people, but when I showed up with this throttle with my own sound system, it was just like making these like ridiculous heavy drones with all this bass. People were, you know, reacting to it. It was like, whoa, what's going on? Um, so it was, in some ways, it was also more successful and the guitar stuff. Although now I, I wish I could still do that guitar drum machine stuff, but um, I'm kind of coming full circle again and, and I'm sequencing some more stuff now and, and doing like a combination of like, I would say semi-automated. I have some sequences, I play live, I have a guitar player again, you know? Yeah. What kind of places are you playing and what, like, what are the crowds like and what's the reception like? Because, you know, at that time, I'm guessing this is what, like early 2000s? This was, no, I would say, yeah, yeah. Well, 2005. Yeah, because at, at that time I was, you know, I was, well, I was going into a lot of hardcore shows up until like... 2003 and then i got really into post-rock for a while i still like it but you know i was really close-minded you know it had it had to be a certain way it had to be a full band if a band had like a drum machine or something out of the ordinary i was like oh that's no good or even if the band like didn't have their bass player that night i'm like oh it's no good like you know i was just like pretty close-minded about everything but like what type of uh places were you playing and what was the reception like well a lot of it was art galleries to be honest um the noise scene in san diego and there's a there's a pretty storied noise and music scene in in san diego like uh crash worship was from here and then you had like this this group sixes which is ryan jenks and he was i was doing some stuff with him and then you um all the all the neurosis guys were up and down the coast, and so there was that sort of tribes of neurot thing. But I was doing more galleries because I came from art school, and so it was an easy thing for me to get. I could hop on these art shows where other people were showing their work, and there was like all sorts of you know performance art, and then I'd hop on there and do my drone metal like sort of suno thing, but my own version of it. And every yeah. time I'd create like a new piece of gear, I would just like incorporate it in the set. And then there were some garages. There was a guy, uh, Sam Lopez. He's still around doing shows and um, called Stay Strange. I can't remember what it was called before, but he would do stuff in this. It was called the Smog Shop, and that was actually a smog shop that was during the day, um, a shop. And then at night, I think it was this, one of the kids' dad's shop, and we would just go in there and roll the door up. Some stuff in TJ or Tijuana, and then up and down the coast. So like there was the terminal in Oakland. That's Ryan Jenks space. I think he still has that, but he might be losing it. Um, there were multiple spaces in Oakland. I can't remember. NIMBY might have been one of them. They're not there anymore because of because of the ghost ship thing and also just the over-gentrification of that whole area. But there was one called Rosaline, Rosaline up in uh, Seattle. So a lot of stuff like that. That sounds like a pretty cool scene, you know, because like my familiarity is like stuff that everyone knows pretty much, hardcore scene and... I don't know, everything that branches out from that. And those scenes can be kind of close-minded in a lot of ways. There's good parts about them too as well. But, you know, it's like a it's like a pretty interesting area you're working in there. Well, they started to, you know, when I was first starting out, it was like that. And then it got to the point where, you know, the sort of, as my music moved away from just being purely like ambient drone, and it was always heavy. Um, when I started working into like, okay, now I'm going to put the drums in here with my right hand. I think that alienated some of the art people. You know, once it started to get into that point where it's like, oh, I'm starting to hear like some industrial vibes here, the sort of chin scratching, you know, smoking 
wine drinking art crowd, you know, was like, oh, okay, this is too heavy for us. They like the gear, but they don't want to hear the music. So then I started moving more into the, you know, the noise industrial scene and getting some shows with like some more clubs. Uh, although to tell you the truth, like that didn't work out that well for me until maybe, yeah, like 2013 or 14. Um, but I just toured. I just kept touring, you know, I, I, all around the West Coast. And, you know, Doug's band, A Life Once Lost, took me on tour in 2012. And that was the first time anyone had really like another band had said, Oh, why don't you come support us and go on this tour that's been set up by agents? You know, I had been to Europe that time I had gone and organized my own tours over there and gone to Brazil because there was an art, some art stuff. But, um, I really wanted to break into the metal world, you know? Um, yeah. And that was because that was the, I wanted to play venues. And so as much as I, I like the DIY scene, you know, it can be a pain in the ass and and I'm very proud that I came from that world, but I, uh, I wanted to break in. And so, you know, then Doug took me and then of course, and then Phil and Selmo, uh, reached out and that's kind of, that's where things opened up. Yeah. I remembered, wasn't Doug out with you, uh, during the Phil and Selmo stuff as well. I remember, I think yeah. you were, you were on his label. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wanted, he wrote to me and just said, Hey, why don't I come do lights for you? And I'll, you know, and I, and I needed a, it was very helpful, man. He, he he had toured so much more than me, and he, he knew the ropes. I think that was right after Life Once Lost broke up the last time, right? Yep. Yeah. I think, was I still living with him at that point? I can't remember. I might have just moved out. But yeah, I've I've known Doug since we're 16, so I'm happy to hear that uh, it was Doug and A Life Once Lost that actually brought you out for the first time. Yeah, I mean, well, I should say the first time, I should say like the first kind of national tour. I yeah. I had been up and down the coast on the West coast with, you know, some bands for a little one-offs here and there. But I think like, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm on a tour now with another band. Yeah. How many years was it of, you know, just playing these shows and trying to figure things out until that tour in 2013? Like how long were you doing it? Um, since 2004. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Because I was doing a lot of San Diego, like with drum machine, two guitar players, guitar player, drums, I did like, I think the furthest I went around was like Tucson, Santa Fe, Denver. Oh yeah. The Denver Rhinoceropolis in Denver. That was a, that was an awesome uh, DIY spot. Santa, Santa Fe was high mayhem festival. Those were the noise guys out there. Did it just naturally progress into more traditional songs? That's where I, that's where the noise and ambient scene loses me a lot because I'm a big, just like typical strong structure guy, you know, like I, I like good structure and songs. I like good songs. Uh, of any type i get i now i like some ambient stuff but like a lot of it loses me like how did you uh did it just naturally progress into more like songs as you're doing this well i was always doing it i it was more just like when i was playing the machines i kind of had these two sides of what i was doing i had the droney stuff that i would use with my machines and then i would do the guitar stuff with the drum machine i just called it i was just doing like one at the art shows and one at my sort of metal shows. And then it just mm-hmm. got to the point where I, like I hate having multiple art projects. It's just fuck, art, multiple music projects. I wouldn't, like, I've, I would never do it. It's just a waste of time for me. You, I feel like you only have enough time to do one project properly, unless you're like loaded and you have, so I'm like author and punisher is author and punisher. So I, it was more just like, I started to be able to play the drums live. Once I was able to do that, then I was like, Oh, okay. 
I got rid of the other guy and I just started playing by myself. Was your bandmate upset that you were doing it yourself now? Well, I got rid of him before that point that I had gotten another guy to just play guitar and then he actually quit. So it, it actually, it wasn't even like I got rid of those dudes. They just, I mean, we weren't doing well enough to sort of like warrant anyone staying. I think they would just like play with me for a little while because it was kind of fun. But the, it, I always, my intention was always to, to make, you know, I was, I always wanted my music to be in the shadow or not the shadow in the same vein as the Melvin's God Flesh Neurosis stuff that I loved. Oh yeah, yeah. There's uh, I can definitely hear the Godflesh and I'm a huge uh, Jezu guy as well, so I'm I I like all that. Yep. Exactly. That's that's and and I'm you know, now how many years later, almost 20 years later, it's like I I feel so much more in control. I've learned so much, you know, and I'm a late bloomer in the music kind of touring world and yeah, I feel I feel like I'm in a good spot. I feel in control of stuff now. Yeah, you know, I was inspired by your story even before I ever talked to you because I was stuck in the corporate world. I was miserable. I was addicted to drugs and I I was just felt like I never could break into music or do it again or that it was over and I remember talking to someone about you and they're like, "Yeah, he like worked on Wall Street and then he didn't like it." So so now he he just does he has these machines and he tours and I was like, "Wow, like God, I wish I could do something like that. Yeah, I love the, the, the I went to MIT, which is not true. And then I, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, what are the other tales that are wrong? I'll take it. I'll take it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they are, but they're. Do you think you're the first person to do what you're doing in this form? Because I haven't heard of anything quite like this before. And I saw you for the first time when you played St. Vitus recently. And, you know, you're really working it. Like you've got the vocal thing and you're like, you're swinging that thing with your right arm to like hit the drum beats. It's uh, you know, I I've never seen anything like it before. I do have an existential crisis sometimes because I you know I sit up there and I'm like you know people in the music world don't particularly love things that are different. You know they sort of you know hardcore is popular again for fuck's sake. I mean, <laughs> and punk rock it's like this one four five bullshit that I just never liked. Uh, that's my dog in the background, but. Oh, that's okay. It's, it's, you know, for me, that's a, like, honestly, I'll be up on stage. Maybe I'm like hungover playing or something. And I'm just thinking of my, and there's no one's like looking, you know, no one's really like making any reaction. One of those shows that's like in France or something and it's, they're sleepy and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like (laughs) why keep doing, you know, like, (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it's, I get a little self-conscious because it is this guitar drum world, you know? And then also even the DJ world is such a stylish thing. Like people don't want to, they're just like, oh yeah, I want to use just pioneer CDJs. You know, like I don't want to use anything else because this is the cool thing. And you're like, no, <laughs> that's not, <laughs> it's, it's, you can, you can be more innovative, but um, am I the only person? Probably not because people ask me if I've, if I want to um, patent this stuff, oh, you should patent these because, you know, I mean, no, you know, you can't patent these. This, the idea of a MIDI controller has been around since like the sixties and seventies. Like you can't, there's nothing novel about what I'm doing. I would say what's novel is that I'm playing this type of music live and I'm, I'm doing electronic music in a live way. I would say the, your particular setup is novel, right? Because I've never seen anyone with one of those arm 
swinging things to do the drum beat and and the the cool like uh bane microphone that you have i've never seen anyone exactly with that stuff yeah maybe yeah i i think i think one thing that i try to yeah i agree there's probably some elements of that as a sort of a style um but i'm i also am trying to in the same way like with art why i went to art school is it sort of taught me to sort of less is more in some ways like i always you know, you could basically take this and sort of like if you worked, if you were working on a movie, you always have to make these. It was when the, the age of Marvel and all these movies, like everything has to be grand gestures, you know? Yeah. And so I do have a lot of people in sort of the cosplay industrial fan base. They want you to take this shit as far as it will go and they want you to be Robocop on stage. And <laughs> for me, I always come back to the idea of I, ju- I try to block that out because, yeah, sure, I could probably be more popular if i was totally ridiculous all the time yeah think about it if you got up with like a whole like industrial steampunk setup and you had like cables running through you and a gas mask on and like a big light show and fog and and weird stuff on stage it could it could be like this whole thing but i feel like i don't know i feel like that stuff has like somewhat of a short shelf life yeah exactly and it's also it's not that practical and you know, when I was on tour with Tool and, and, and there, I wouldn't even say on tour with Tool. When, what, on many tours and at many shows, I've had this tendency in the past to just go way overboard um, with, you know, I've got two sound cards with two computers. I've got like two different microphones, all my masks set up on like this other swinging arm that would come over and then uh, all my entire sound system. So I have like six subwoofers and you know, all running through custom, like a custom rack that I made that's like got like wires falling out. And, you know, you're trying to set this up and I don't have any money. So I'm doing it like by myself with no staff, kind of like, you know, captured by robots. He, he travels by himself and you're just like, what the fuck are you doing, you maniac? <laughs> um, and so it's like that, the stress of that, like that, that's what's happened to me. It's like, I don't do that anymore. On the tool trip, I could because I, I could hire some people. I had five other people with me to help me. Um, and I wanted, you know, Danny and Justin wanted me or Adam wanted me to be on that tour. I'm like, I'm going to show them everything I have. But if I got a big tour like that, I don't think I would do that again because a, um, you, I don't think it makes the performance better. I definitely don't play better when I have more gear on stage. I play much better when I have a much simpler setup. Um, and it's frustrating for some fans like in Europe, especially Europe, cause they're very open and they speak their minds without any tact like the germans will come up and be like oh, it is very disappointing that you i'm doing a french accent <laughs> i heard that from another guest recently that the germans are very direct with uh their critiques yeah you know it's not just the germans i would say it's most europeans they're kind of like oh you don't yeah you really uh you didn't bring much stuff it's your your performance is much less exciting than it used to be but great job uh-huh. But great job, you know, and you're just like thinking to yourself, like, I'm thinking to myself in my mind, I'm like, thank God that I only have this amount of stuff because I'm able to like, I, I can, t- in my mind, I can, I can deal with it, you know, and, and yeah. technically it never fails. And like, yes, I have more stuff. I could bring it. But um, anyway, I, I, I'm at a comfortable place with myself there, you know, like I don't bring four things that I don't need just to have them on stage. Yeah, because for that tool tour, you brought like all of your biggest stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, that tours in stadiums. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I did for the first 12 shows, which were in the US. And then they asked me to go to Australia with them. And I had to like on the fly decide because the shows, I think we had like a week off and then we, everything got shipped to Australia. And so I had to decide like, you know, I don't, I can't afford to bring the crew there. So I guess we'll just take my small setup, which is what I was normally touring with. So uh, anyway, and then when I did the shows in Australia, we did eight more. And honestly, it was like, I didn't bring the light package either that I had rented. And it was, in my mind, those shows were a lot more enjoyable for me because I could really like, I wasn't worried about, okay, now I got to move this thing and then I got to go over here. And it was just so stressful. And now I was, I was just much more fluid. Like that's how it's designed. My setup is designed to be like, there's something in your left hand that moves between things easily. And then the right hand is just sort of subconsciously like moving through the beats and my feet have these pedals. And so like, it was exactly the amount of gear that I, I needed. And that's what I, when I'm touring with Doug now, it's like, we have such a nice amount of stuff. I'm very like comfortable with it. How was uh, the reception to you at those tool shows? It was, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I had, I know a lot of people who've toured with them. So I, you know, picked their, some of their brains, like I know Yob and uh, Dalek, big business. And I've, I've crossed paths with all of them. So I, you know, asked some questions of three teeth who I know well from LA. And so they had said, yeah, there's, you're, you're going to get heckled a little bit. And um, that did happen a little bit, but for the most part, people were pretty interested. And I got a lot of like, thank yous on Instagram and people I, I'd walk out in the audience and sort of watch tool every night and you'd, people come up and say nice things. I, I really, they were a much, uh, I don't know, for a pop metal audience, they were very nice. I, I like. I never had an issue with anybody. Yeah, you know, Tool fans are peculiar. Like you see the memes sometimes, and they're just insane about Tool and know everything about Tool. But I feel like they're pretty cool. Like they'd be pretty open minded, especially to you, because I, I don't know. I just I've never heard anybody say anything bad about you because like I the music is good, the setup is really unique. Like it's a it's a very unique thing. So I I just you know I think. At least from my end, everything I hear is always positive, which is good. Yeah, they were cool. I mean, I would just – Tool always brings um, – you know, I think they have a pretty diverse group of bands they've taken out. You know, from Isis to Mastodon to Meshuggah. And those, those I guess, are like the sort of uh, more popular ones. But, you know, like, yeah, Dalek, like aggressive rap you know, noisy rap. And then you go like, so it, it's just, yeah. Nyab, obviously all these bands and, and, and they, they don't draw enough people to be a support on a big thing like that. And so it was really cool that, that tool brings those bands around it. it it's an amazing opportunity that I'm sure everyone <laughs> of the bands, including myself was just like, so thankful to have. It's, it was just a absolutely life-changing experience. I like that. I like that. So, I mean, you've done, I know that you have dug out with you now and you've gone out with people before, but you've also done a lot of touring by yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, on the last shows with tool in the U S there, I was, I was by myself when we came back from Australia, I just said, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to drive myself. So I just, I slept in the parking lot of the arena in my van. Do you like that? I got to say, like I've toured with bands, but like as a merch guy, yeah, I'm going to be touring for the first time in a band soon. But the idea of being out by myself sounds very appealing. Because I'm a pretty solitary guy, you know? Like, I'm okay being around people, too. But the idea of being able to tour by myself sounds very appealing. Do you like it? 
yeah, I mean, I love it. I, I, I don't like staying at people's houses for the most part because it, it actually, you know, you got to deal with their cats and their kids and then they always want to make you breakfast in the morning and like, like yeah. I don't want to have breakfast. You know, like <laughs> I, I just want to go like have coffee and get in the road and, um, it's nice to sort of exist. You know, you can get like a little camping stove and, oh, I'm just going to stop here and like go see this thing, you know, listen to pot, listen to books. Cause you know, in the van, everybody likes to listen to like some loud metal and I like to listen to books. Yeah. Like I like, I like to listen to Howard Stern or podcasts or that type of thing. I, 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 us- I don't listen to as much music as I used to all the time. Yeah. Or on the road. You know, I always listen to like reggae too. Like I like a lot of like dub and like electronic music that a lot of people that I tour with don't particularly like. Um, yeah, I, it's good to, when you're on a long trip, it's good to put on something that you don't really have to think about or fiddle with. Like I like those lo-fi hip hop beat stations. Yeah. I like all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, I think you're going to love it. I mean, depending on if you're sleeping in the van or you're going to get a hotel room or um, it's it's really, especially in Europe, it, it, like my, my sort of ch- relationship to touring and Doug is a very like, you know, we're, we're very independent. So like we know when each other needs time, he knows people all over the place. So a lot of times he'll just go his way and I'll go my way. Or, and then when we want to hang out, we'll hang out, never have problems with each other. And we sort of have it. So he deals with the merch, at least for now. And I'm dealing with the gear. Um, so we have our own jobs and, uh, but like I, I'm hanging out less and less like at the venues. I try to like go hiking or go have a nice meal and just kind of show up near the set just so I don't get burned out on like, you know, shitty venue backstages and shit like that. Yeah. that I want to be like in the mindset before I go on stage. Plus like I used to be a wild alcohol and drug addict, so I don't necessarily want to be a, around a lot of drinking or weed smoke or anything like that. You know, I just want to be like sequestered somewhere until it's time to play. Yeah, exactly. And it's tough because you want to be you, you, that social interaction is is a huge part of like what I love about um but there's also like the punishment about gear that happens with me and that yeah. can be for every night for 20 days in a row it it starts to wear on me and then I get you know I'm starting to like oh I don't want to talk about this anymore <laughs> um, like, yeah there's there's so many things like that that after 20 years of doing this I'm kind of like okay now I I know what I I know what what I need to do to get in the right mindset to put that performance on. How did you decide to incorporate Doug with, for live guitar? When did that start happening? Well, it was actually when I was, you know, the pandemic got back last three shows, a tool were canceled. And I, I drove straight home from Portland, Oregon to San Diego. And then, you know, for about a month, just sort of processed, you know, the, 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 the pandemic and, and that tour it was like crazy time be on this crazy tour and then have to go home um, to a world pandemic that lasted for two years and it's still sort of happening. But I started writing the album. I set all my stuff up in the studio, started writing the album. And uh, I think in like after six months, I sort of had some good songs together and I was doing that Portishead cover. And I asked my manager at the time, Phil Scrosso, who played guitar, who plays guitar in Asley Dying, is um, the San Diego guy. He was on the tool trip with me, doing lights for half of it and managing. And he and I have been good friends for a while. And he, uh, I said, hey, could you play a lead on, do the lead for Portishead? Um, 
and then he played it. And then we, I, I, I said, well, there might be some other spots that maybe you could add some stuff. And basically, because it was the pandemic, I caught Phil. Basically, he basically just wrote guitar for the whole entire album in about a month. And uh, he sent me a bunch of tracks, and I was, because I was sort of like, sus- you know, suspect of like, this isn't this isn't going to work out, you know, because I didn't write, I didn't, I was like, I don't need it. I've already got like, it's already heavy. I already have melodies, but man, I was just like kind of blown away. It really worked, you know. It was like it added you know it was just me being a little naive really it was amazing i love i i had you know i didn't use all of it um but i used most of what he the material he gave me and i mixed it in uh for the live setup what happens do you send the tracks to doug and he just kind of replicates what's happening or how how deep does it go yeah so basically what happened there was you know phil couldn't tour with me and i knew i knew that i knew that was going to happen i was like fuck so i'll just sequence the guitars and then I was like, nah, you can't sequence a guitar lead, you know, because I, I try to minimize the amount of stuff that I sequence. You know, I have like some some rhythmic stuff that, you know, is or like a sample, like or like some rhythmic stuff, like, you know, or like, you know, some, like that stuff I was saying, the electronic person produces in the studio. That's like you can't really play that live because it's like textures or it's an arpeggiator So that kind of stuff. I sequence. Um but I play the main drums, the bass, I sing it live, and I play some of the higher synths when I have an extra hand. So the guitars, I was like, no, we can't sequence this. So Phil and I were like coming up with some people, and I needed it to be somebody that I liked like to bro down with, and I also needed them to be kind of a shredder, you know? Because some of the the riffs are a little bit like like do 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 these kind of like arpeggiated, and then there's some leads. Um and I immediately thought of Doug and I wrote to him and he was, it was, there was really no discussion, you know, he flew out, you know, a few months later and we, we, we prepped for it and drank some beers and it was great. But yeah, he, I think, I think he and Phil like discussed it and uh, like he had to switch to it. Phil wrote it on an eight string Ibanez or something. And then uh, Doug's got a Framus seven string. So he was able to do most of what, Phil was doing. Yeah. And uh, Doug is like, Doug, I think would be one of the best people to be out on the road with. I mean, I lived with him for years. I've known him for years, just a solid all around. He's a, he's a road dog, man. He's like, he's over there. He just got in there yesterday for ecstatic vision. He's going to be there for six weeks. And then he has one, no days off. His last show is June 6th in Utrecht, Netherlands. And then I think we pick him up Oh no, we're actually renting their van. So then I get in on the seventh, and we go play Liege, Belgium uh, that night. So he has no days off. He's pretty much going to be playing shows straight for nine weeks. <laughs> well, he's been doing this pretty much nonstop since he's sixteen. I know. I'm a little worried about him on this tour, to be honest, because it's like you know, he's he's probably going to be like, oh man, I'm taking it easy on the drinking right now. You know, he'll play. He won't be having as many beers when I see him. <laughs> Doug, uh, check in and let us know how you're doing, huh? We want to make sure you're okay. Yeah, yeah. I want to. Yeah, I'll check in on him and I'll give him a week because I'm I, I'm sure they're having a lot of fun right now. When uh, when you record the records, how does that work? Do you have your stuff in the studio? Like, wh- what's the deal? Um, I just do it for the most part. I've done it multiple ways. When I recorded every single album I've done, I usually just like play them in my studio and I record them. I record the MIDI 
to my session on Ableton. And then I take that into the studio and um, reamp the stuff, you know, out. So I'll like run it through other speakers. And then some of the synths I'll run through some like nice, a lot of software synths, but then also like some electron analog four synths I'll run through like some Shadow Hills preamps and things like that. And, you know, layer the stuff up like I do live. Um, so you get a little bit of the analog and like a little bit of the speaker and a little bit of the sub bass all mixed together. The drums are all just samples that I create. And then we do like the last album, John Coda, who's like my sound engineer, he played some drums that I like kind of chopped up. Danny from Tool played some drums. So this last album, I had people sending me stuff and then incorporating it. But uh, the only time I, I did it live live was with Phil Anselmo at his house. When I went to record with him, he had his own team of guys and they wouldn't let me play a play to a click track and he wouldn't let me edit anything. Like I was not allowed to sit down at the Pro Tools desk. Like he had his dudes do it, which was cool. But it was also like, dude, I'm playing electronic music. Like, you know, you can go in and like slide this stuff around a little bit and you can also like add synths later and. They just, you know, he had his own way of doing it, which was cool. I'm glad I did it for that album, but I'd never do it again. Why couldn't you be involved with it? Why could, like, it had to be their way? Well, he was a producer on it with me, but mainly it was him, you know, and he he wanted, he was like conducting, you know, he'd be sitting in there with his arms and like with his little conductor cigarette and like, (laughs) you know, just like, you know, we would just start drinking beers and just like play this stuff. And he wanted it to be live, you know, like, which I respect, but if you listen to that album, Melk and Honig, like my my tempo is like all over the place, <laughs> except for a couple songs that actually had like a sample loop, you know, like young, young, like the song "The Barge," um, "Shame." But if you listen to like "Future Man," like that song, which is like my one of my favorite tracks, but I don't play it live. It's like it's like I mean, it probably shifts like fifteen BPM accidentally throughout the whole song. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, he insisted on no click track. Yeah. I think I snuck in there. So like there were a couple times when like they wouldn't listen to me. Like I wanted something. I was there for like three weeks and I just stayed up in this like bedroom and like a pile of blankets. And I, I, I snuck into the pro tools desk one night and like made some changes and they never, they never found out about it. <laughs> um, that seems weird that like you were just not allowed to you know, have a click track or make any changes. Yeah. I mean, I probably could have fought him on it to be honest, but it, you know, it's, it's not a terrible idea. And you know, he's, he's a really good musician and a really amazing producer. And you know, that guy is focused and, and I was really impressed and it was great working with him. So I respected him and I, I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's make a live industrial album. You know, let's do this. Like, I mean, obviously we, we tracked the vocals like second, but, um, and we added some middle, you know, some things, but everything, every like bass tone and right-handed drum thing was all played live. You know, there were, maybe we punched in, but there was no like sliding the notes around or anything like that. You're on relapse records now. That's got to be great, right? They're great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really psyched. We're, uh, I'm hoping to do, we, we, we completed our two albums. So now I think we're going to be moving on to. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we haven't really talked about it, but I'm hoping that we can just do more. Did you see a bump after Relapse? I mean, they're a pretty legendary label. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
I, you know, I'm not, I've been around for a long time, so I'm not getting that. Like, I remember when I, I saw a huge bump when I was like, um, what was the name of that? I can't fucking remember. When I did Terror Bird on Ursus Americanus, those two albums, Ursus Americanus and Women and Children, when I did those, because Terror Bird was the most popular song I've ever had, there was a big, huge bump there. It was like, oh, what? There was like, what's this stuff, you know? Um, since then, you know, people have gotten used to it. So it's a little harder to, I saw a good bump. I'm doing better with my turnouts now. So like getting much better, like support tours and things like that. But it's still like, if you look at the history, it's just pretty, just steady rise. You know, there's been no like defining moment, even tool, like tool was a good bump, but you don't, it's not like you sell, you're selling out your um, catalog, your back catalog and your catalog because you're out on tour with Tool. It doesn't happen that way. But, I mean, steady rise, that's good, right? Better than uh, drop off. Right, exactly. The Fire Breathing Dragon, you know, you Robocop, you'd have a big jump, but I would also not be true to like, I'm still trying to just play live electronic music um, with devices that are carefully designed, but not like, they're not fake steampunk uh shells you know they're, they're actual things that control sound and um yeah i don't want to overdo it you know these still i can still travel in three pelican cases um that's good yeah you need to be true to who you are too like if you were a theatrics guy and really into steampunk and like weird fashion like okay but i met you at that saint vitus show with doug and you just seem like a pretty nice normal guy so i mean you got to be true to who you are yeah, well, thank you, and uh, that's the way I feel, and I wouldn't be. Although I, I'm, I'm excited. I love uh, the, the fashion world, especially. Like, man, that that that's like a a world where they spend a lot of money to make some ridiculous, like theatrical, but also like beautiful, uh, visceral aesthetic kind of like machinery mixed in with fashion. Like, that's a really cool world, and I. I you know, someday it might be fun to make some stuff for that, but there there are limits to what I'll do. Like, am I just designing a sculpture here or am I making an instrument, you know? Yeah. Um, Have you tapped into that world at all? Or I could see you at like a, like a, a St. Laurent weird fashion show making some noise or doing like some kind of soundtrack for something. Have you, have no. you gotten off any offers like that? No, I think some songs have been used on the runway and like certain things, but um no, not really. And in, in the soundtracking world, I've had some opportunities and done some like a lot of times they'll just put feelers out because um, Health, who I toured with recently, has done a lot of that and a lot of video game work. And like they did Max Payne and they've done some some movie scoring and they're really good at it. Um, it it's not my favorite thing to do movie scoring. And I that's why like if I had to think about it, like I'm more of a gear person. So I'm more interested in the gear side. I'm not going to say no to other stuff, but you know, I'd re- I like being in the studio, but I'm, I'd much rather be like designing and making like machinery. No, that makes sense. Like I get offers sometimes they're like, Hey, do you want to go to this show? Do you want to cover this show? Do you, you know? And I'm like, no, like, I, honestly, I don't really like going to shows that much anymore. I, I just want to sit home in front of my gear and talk to people like yourself and then chop it up and then put it out there. <laughs> yeah. You have to, something about getting old, you sort of, I think it's just, you sort of running out of time and running out of patience that you, you stop saying yes to everything and you sort of have, okay, 
I'm my my road is narrowing here. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm 45. Yeah, you're 45. If I'm you, I want to be home side by side with my wife playing video games. You know. Well, half that's the, time. the dream right there. Yeah. Sometimes it is. And actually, I have to go down and do a. Like I'm doing a collab track with someone I'm probably not supposed to mention yet, and I got to do vocals on it. And uh, I, mm. I last night I I was decided I was going to work on my van and play Elden Ring, and um, <laughs> and tonight I'm like I could easily do the same thing, but I, he's probably going to send me an email tomorrow wondering where the files are. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. During the initial rise of Author and Punisher, you know, I remember a period where everybody was discovering you and there's little documentaries about the gear and all that stuff. That had to feel good, right? Because, I mean, you've been working on this thing for a long time. Yeah. I mean, th- those, those I haven't done them as much lately because I feel like we kind of we kind of beat it into the ground a little bit. But when I build some new stuff, it doesn't take much to get like, hey, I built some new stuff. You want to cover it? And then you can get somebody to come out, you know, and. But yeah, it felt good. Like Red Bull, I did one at the Moog Fest, which was kind of probably my most informative one. And you know, like Noisy has been great. Make Magazine, Wired Magazine. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it for me, it was funny because that world was cool, but they weren't, it still was that thing where I wanted to break into the metal world. You know, I, I wanted to be recognized in uh, metal magazines. I was like, I'm playing metal and it's, it's doom metal and it stands up with other doom metal and other industrial music, but I, I'm not getting coverage in those magazines, you know? And I, um, so it was cool, but it it was cooler when I, it's always cooler, even though if it's, you know, to get a a piece in decibel or or revolver. Yeah. That's where it's at for sure. No, I I know the feeling because there was so many years where I wasn't doing anything because I was just in bad shape. And now, you know, I'm 41 years old and I'm doing things and things are starting to pop off. It's like, it's like a dream come true because years ago, I'm sitting in my basement apartment alone, high. I'm like, I'm too old. Nothing's going to happen. Music is over. I blew it. But uh, it's never too late. It's never too late to turn everything around. Yeah, it was just coming from different points. And, you know, I, I, I think it was always, it's always been this thing to like, I wanted to get, you know, it's just like, I guess it's it's for my own, you know, ego or whatever, just to, to be recognized by the metal world in that sense. But it's also like to get the metal world to sort of like loosen up a little bit about it. it's like, oh, yeah, it's fucking Slayer. You know, like even when I was playing for Phil Anselmo opening for him, like people were yelling Slayer. <laughs> and I'm just like, I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these morons? You know, like or they would either yell Slayer or Skrillex because they were calling me Skrillex. But they wanted to hear Slayer, but it was like, you're not even hearing Slayer. You're gonna hear Pantera covers. Like, what the fuck? I think it's just muscle memory for metal people to yell Slayer. Yeah, it was. And, and the thing <laughs> was is I was never a fan of like the mainstream metal like that. So I always it was always just kind of bonehead to me. Um, but uh I, I, I think like that world is now well, there was a time when every metal band had like a noise guy. And then there was one like back in the nineties with like a DJ. And then now you've got, uh, well, now you've got all the metal bands basically sequencing their entire setup and playing along with it. Mm-hmm. So there's all these kind of weird tech things that they're doing, but they're still playing guitar, drums, bass, you know? And so there's like no, I mean, it, it is opening up to a certain degree, but. 
It is. I was talking to a, a band recently, and they said they don't even need to bring amplifiers anymore. They just they're doing whatever it is you're talking about. And I'm like, really? I had no idea. Well, Doug just plugs into my setup. We our our amp blew on the first tour European tour I did with him, and like the second show because the stuff had sat for like two years, and so like a lot of these amps, like when they first got out, they were like. We just I don't know what we blew, so I was like, "Fuck!" So like for two shows, we had this awkward thing plugging into the PA until I could program it on my laptop. So all he basically plays through my my rig, and we use a neural DSP like Gojira sort of you know sounding plugin. So he he doesn't have any amps, so we don't have any speakers on stage. I love that you could make up some whole story like. Doug shredding on the guitar is powering you and uh, you're playing all the machines. It could be like a whole lore thing. Well, he loves it because he doesn't have to like, we don't have to carry as much stuff now, but. Yeah. Carrying all that stuff must be a pain, right? By the way, like you, you ever see all the memes like, oh, the singer never carries any gear. You're single-handedly turning that stereotype around. Exactly. Well, you know, it's like, uh, I, there was a meme that came out. I think it was one of the guys from full of hell, like posted or something, but you know that? Did you play that game Death Stranding? No, it 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 looked too out there for me. Oh, it was so good, especially because like I'm like I'm big into my van, I'm big into gear, and I'm also like really into cases. Like I have like a Pelican case for every single piece of equipment that I have, and it's essentially like when I show up to a show, there's like a you know, I've, well, I got three Pelican cases, but then I've got the one for my microphone, and then the thing for this, and then Doug's got his, and so and then my lights. So there's really probably like 10, and they're all stacked in this way. And it's a, somebody said like, oh, it, this is author of Punisher just out on tour. And there's a picture of the guy from Death Stranding with all these cases attached to his body, you know, <laughs> with his van, you know, riding through these like desolate landscapes. I love that game. I was like, it was like Pelican case logistics across a, anyway, a People said the game was just like, oh, it's just like you carrying packages places. And I was like, that doesn't sound too fun. It sounded like being on tour, to be honest. I, I kind of liked it. I, I loved just sort of taking care of it all. And then uh, I think part of like the, the band that I really like, although I do have managers now, is like I like that logistical. I like the logistical part of it. I like the DIY nature of like, um, like I loved figuring Europe out. Like a lot of times, you know, you talk to these European agents and drivers and you get to know all these people over there and, you know, it's different over there. You got to do the, you know, staying in hotels, the highways are different. You got to pay tolls. You got to do the ferries. Um, there's different rules, you know, but for me, it was like, and so you're paying all these people over there to do it. I'm like, no, I can figure this out. You know, so we, Doug, we just drive ourselves over there now. We get our own hotels and, um, you know, you sort of get to if you're just a passenger in the back of some van, you don't get to really experience. And as an American, I think we're so, we drive places, you know? So I was like, I'm just going to drive. And then, you know, we've gotten into some trouble before, but I love that. I love figuring out that whole process. Um, I don't know that I would want to do it in Asia or South America, but it was cool there. Yeah. It just, that just sounds scary to me. You know, imagine being in, well, you don't have to imagine, but like you're in a country, you don't know the language, you don't know the roads, you can't read the signs. Like, Jeez. Well, yeah. And also just there's some of those places there's going in between areas. It gets pretty rural and, you know, there's not as much money in some of those places. So there it's not safe. Um, and you're driving a sprinter van full of a bunch of, you know, like a U universal audio sound car that's worth $3,000. And those, you know, with your merch cash, it's just, a, 
sketchy. Does someone sleep in the van? I know ecstatic vision, like someone would always sleep in the van to prevent uh, a theft. Uh, I, I've actually renovated my van now. So I've got like a little kitchen in there and a bed. And I did sleep on this last one. We just did a three shows in the West Coast. It was the maiden voyage for that setup. And um, there were three of us and Doug and John slept in the hotel room and I slept in the van. But it was great. I got beers in there. Little, you know, it was very comfortable. Fan. Yeah, like I want to volunteer, you know, when I'm doing my touring, if there's a van involved, I want to volunteer to sleep in the van because it would be like my own little apartment. I can sit in there. I can watch Twitch. I can listen to a podcast. It'll be fine. Yeah, if you can get it to be comfortable, as long as it's not the bench seat. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I, some of these metal vans, man, they're just a goddamn disaster. It's a, <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't do that. I, I, I got, I got, what do you call it? Standards. Yeah, no, I I hear you on that. I've I've realized I can be a bit germophobic, especially when I'm traveling. I think Doug thinks I'm bougie, but that's you know I, I'm proud of that at this point. So you're working on new machines. How long have you been working with the stuff you have now, and what's going to be the change when with the new stuff you're working on? Well, it's been sort of a I built the right hand controller that I have now. I built in 2009, but the microphone I built this summer. Um, the left hand, I built this thing called mini rack. It's like these two sliding keys. I built that in 2018. So, and I had built a new right hand controller called gridiron in 2018 as well. And I toured one tour with it in Europe and I kind of beat the shit out of it. It's, it's thrashed. Um, and I was like, okay, this is a failure, you know, which happens sometimes you just make things don't work. Um, and also you couldn't really see it was, it was an X, Y rather than just a back and forth. So it had this little stylus that would go on these little grooves that, um, so I went back to the original one, which I still use and it's never broken on me, knock on wood. So that one, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I'll, I'm making, I'm not really, I don't have plans to make, remake that one yet. Um, I, I, I have ideas, but for the most part, these are these sort of controllers that are sliding, spinning, throttles, things like that. Some of them are 19 inches that fit into a rack. Like the three products we're making for our company are this slide, two sliding keys that fit into a 19 inch rack. This sort of thing I call the ingot, which is like a disc that's not flat, but vertical. And it slides along a rail and it also spins. So you can kind of like roll your hand on it. I don't know if you've seen like a lathe, so it kind of spins in that way. And then the other one is just these knobs that'll be made out of either concrete, granite, raw steel, or wood. And those are all sound making devices. You can plug them into your modular rig. So like you can, you know, a lot of these people that have these like crazy synthesizer setups at home now, um, you can plug it into your guitar pedals. So these are supposed to be like, like if you look at my setup when I'm playing live, there's a thing in front of me that looks like it's like a, it's got metal sides and I usually have two keyboards in there and like a little a box with a bunch of knobs and then I have some devices on it. And that's kind of like we're going to sell something like that where it's this custom rack where you can reconfigure to have like some knobs, one of these other sliders. You could put an electron synthesizer in there. Um, so it sort of like allows you to interface either with your computer or anything you want. And it's got custom electronics that we're making with this microcontroller called the Daisy, which is in a lot of electronic music instruments now, which is an open source device that you can program. So like there'll be an online portal where people can share the code that they're using. Like, oh, hey, I made a cool sound or I've used my device this way, you know, 
and then you just download the code onto your device and use it. That's pretty fascinating stuff. You're like a, a man on an island. I mean, if you need to ask questions, where do you go? I guess you would just ask other engineers or something, right? Well, the company that's helping us with the electronics is pretty skilled in this. They, you know, they make a, it's a computer chip, essentially. It's, it's called the Daisy. There used to be one, you probably heard of Arduino. Um, no. That's, that's an Italian one that's like a, that I use on all my current gear. Um, it's, it's just like a little, you upload your code to it and you can, has a USB plug and you can output MIDI um, that goes right to my laptop or you can plug it directly into a synthesizer or a drum machine. And so that's, there's a lot of people, there's a community doing it, but we're trying to make it so that like you can buy our device, but it's actually like it is, you know, endlessly reconfigurable. Um, you can buy each part. Oh yeah, the cable broke where you can buy the cable assembly. So there's none of this bullshit where you got to like, oh, the thing's broken, you know. Um, you can buy all the parts online. And, and and the thing that we're trying to break into now is sort of the DJ world. Is, is That's sort of like what I'm fast tracking right now is sort of this sort of interfacing with DJ gear um, so that we're getting them out of the knob twiddling into the large knob twiddling. Yeah, there, I think there's great potential there. I can imagine a DJ using like that arm pump drum thing that you use and all the different MIDI controllers. And now I'm envisioning like some industrial DJ music that's really heavy. There's uh, there's there's all kinds of stuff that could be done. The problem with the arm pump is that it it is uh it the the problem is is when you slam something like that, you're gonna you, you basically knock the table over every time you do it, <laughs> and. It's it's not even a joke. Like it's a it's a it's a deal breaker in a lot of ways because I've had to I have to basically make this U shaped. I have these three tables that go around me and they're all bolted together. They're all like with like leveling on all the feet, and that was the only way I could do it. So I play this thing and it doesn't slide across the stage. Um, so that's why that one is something we're not really making to sell because um, people will try to like attach it to something and they'll just knock over whatever they're using. Yeah. It's a real problem. I, I, Cause I can tell you because I, for, for many years I was like using saw horses. Like I'd be in tour in the UK and like you find out that nobody's tables were solid enough for you to bolt to. So I'm like, my wife and I'd be like driving in the middle of like Bradford or some random city to like some manufacturer of saw horses, but it's like a different word for it. Or I think it was like stall. I can't remember the name for it in Germany, but like in every country, I know what the sawhorse is in that language because trying to bolt it to it because you need something strong. And it was just, it was a real hassle and embarrassing. Have you ever had a catastrophe live where you just, I mean, because you have a pretty unique setup. It's not like, oh, just run out and get a cable and fix this. Like, have you ever had a catastrophe that you couldn't get around in your live show? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Many times. Many, many times. Um, I had, well, actually, funny to say, the last tool show I did, uh, right before, like, the, when, when basically that night they told us that the tour was pretty much over, we all got pretty drunk and probably, you know, gave each other COVID. But it was like, we, my computer, one of my devices, like, the wire had gotten frayed and I didn't notice. And it was connecting and reconnecting the power, like, very fast. And my computer eventually just, like, you know, the software just like went into that kind of digital sound land where it goes like the matrix sound. Yeah. It was like during terror bird, the last song I was playing. So it kind of like fit 
And I, I basically just, I knew because it had started to creep in on that song. I was like, oh, fuck. And so I just, at some point, I didn't finish the song. I just closed my laptop and I was like t- still talking into the mic and it was just slowly. And then I think there was a big beep, you know, uh, and that was it. I was like, oh, well, that's appropriate for the pandemic. <laughs> um, and then I, I think in Belgium, there was one where I, that that device I said that wasn't really working, like the handle, it was a 3D printed handle and it snapped off. And so I was sort of like trying to play it, but pushing down and uh, it was only like one song in and I was the headliner and I had to, I had to cancel the whole show, um, which is really, which is really uh, depressing. Yeah, because it's got to suck because there's not really anything you can do. I mean, you can't bring a 3D printer with you to print reprint something and like weld it together you know i try to bring so i bring an extra like i bring an extra chip like the, the the circuit um like my microcontroller for my main drum controller because that's the one that if like i you know if, if my sound card goes my computer goes i can always buy another sound card i could i probably miss the show like if, if something happened in soundcheck and, and like something's broken like the way i see it is like okay well it would just be one show on tool i had a backup computer i had a backup for almost everything and i had a plan on stage that if something went wrong we would a b to a different setup it would take like some downtime but for the most part i have backups i have a soldering iron i have wires i have switches i sort of have like a plan for how i can get through the show no, that makes sense. You got to plan for the worst and hope for the best. I used to bring, yeah, but on these smaller tours, you know, where there's 150 people, 200 people, you're not like, it's not the end of the world if you miss one show. People are used to it now with COVID, so they're they're trained. Yeah, that's one good thing about COVID is that <laughs> like, you know, if a band has to cancel, people just understand now. It's like, okay, that you have COVID, you, you know, you can't necessarily go out there and just give it to everybody. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, Tristan, let's talk about what we've got coming up. We've got the June tour dates in Europe, right? When does that kick off? First date is June 7th in uh, Liege, Belgium. And it kind of goes, there's three festivals in there. um, Mystic Festival, Gdansk, Poland, Full Force Festival in Germany somewhere, and then Rock and Berlone. And it's basically a trip through Scandinavia, which for me – that sort of loop through Germany, up through the Baltics, Scandinavia, back down through the Netherlands, tend to be sort of my, I would say, probably the best, other than the UK, like the best loop for me in Europe. So we're trying to hit some of those markets again. That's, uh, for me, that's that's the probably yeah, it's not my favorite part of Europe. I just think it's the one right now that's doing the best for me. So we're going to hit it. That's good. What anything else we can announce? Uh, any any potential new music or uh, anything else? Well, I've, I've, I do have. I did three collaborations, which I don't think I can mention any of them yet because none of them have been finished and actually. Uh, but I put a lot of work into them and involving me singing a little bit and doing some industrialifying some other people's music, which is rad. Like something in the more proggy area, another industrial, and then something in the synthwave world. And so that's, that's fun for me. And I would say the gear is the biggest thing that'll be happening this year. Um, there's a big collaboration happening and also, uh, we will be releasing some gear to sell finally. Excellent. It's all happening right here, right now. Yep. Or actually a little bit later, but still it's all happening. Yep. Yep. We're excited. Well, uh, Tristan, 
I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I really dig what you're doing, as many do. So keep doing it. Thank you very much. And uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's a very chill afternoon for me. And there you have it, Tristan Schoen. Wow. Great, great conversation. Really interesting story. I got to see him for the first time, I think it was this year, late last year. I can't remember, but my good friend Doug, who plays guitar and sings in Ecstatic Vision, is a live guitarist for Author and Punisher now. He invited me to the gig, went and saw it, met Tristan. Really nice guy. Great performance, too. I mean, Tristan is one of a kind. If you've seen him, If you've seen him live, if you see what he does live with those machines, there's nothing else like it. It's great stuff. And I I remember that, A Life Once Lost tour where they took Author and Punisher out. I was at the Brooklyn date. That was sometime in 2012. But I didn't know that was the first time Tristan did a full U.S. with a band on a tour like that. And I love that it was with A Life Once Lost because those guys are friends of mine and Several of them have been on the show, so that was cool, and I'm just happy that it's happening for Tristan. You know, he said he wanted to get covered in metal magazines and and play these venues and play with these bands and, and get the coverage, and I'm glad it's happening. I mean, if not for him, then who? Because the guy is one of a kind. Look at what he's building. Look at what he's doing. So, great conversation. Thank you for coming on the show, Tristan. All right, so how are we doing? I'm going to check in and I'm going to do it quick because I don't feel good. I'm sick again. I have some kind of crazy sinus thing going on. I don't know if it this is like a getting sick viral cold thing or if my sinuses are messed up. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if it happens again soon, I guess I'm going to go to an ear, nose, throat doctor, but I've been bedridden all day. My weekend is shot. And I'm not happy about it. But what I am happy about is that this happened right before the tour. Because if I got sick on tour, that's miserable, right? Who wants to do that? So I suspect I'll get over this before the tour kicks off. This uh, When am I leaving? I'm leaving this Thursday. And I'll be gone for like a week. Um, so better now than on tour, right? So I'm sick. I'm not happy. But despite that, I pushed through and went to the Jerome's Dream gig last night at TVI in Brooklyn. I got there in time to see Elizabeth Colorwheel, who were fantastic. Never heard them before. Didn't see them before. Awesome. Jerome's Dream, first time seeing them. Wow. I was blown away. And it was a sold-out show. The crowd was going off. Uh, I, I can't say enough nice things about it. So if you have the opportunity to see them on this run, I don't know how many dates are left, but Go see them. You will not be disappointed. And the new album is great. My favorite of the year so far. So I'm glad I pushed through and went to that, despite not feeling good, because uh, I got to meet Jeff for a minute outside after the gig from Jerome's Dream and Eric from Jerome's Dream. I was talking to him for a minute. Really nice to meet those guys. They've both been on the show. Uh, Didn't get to say hi to Sean, but I was in a rush to get out of there because I really didn't feel good. And then I, you know, I've been in bed all weekend with a stuffy head and I'm sneezing and it's, uh, it's miserable. It's miserable. But, uh, that's it. 
that's everything that's going on. I'm going to keep it short because I don't feel good. I'm back next week. I'm going to give you a hint about who's on the show next week. It's a hardcore band, and they've been in the news a ton because they just put out an excellent new record. Who could it be? Hmm. Hmm. I wonder. You're going to have to wait till next week to find out. So I've got a music recommendation for you this week. This is a great song to kick off summer and summer weather. I always listen to this album around this time of year. The band is called Castavet. The song is called Narrow Hallways. And this is from their 2011 record, The Echo and the Light. Now, it was spelled Castavet how you think it should be spelled, but then they had to change it because of legal reasons. So if you search CSTVT, You'll find it on Spotify or wherever else. I guess you can just search regular cast of it too. I don't know. But the song is called Narrow Hallways. The album's called The Echo and the Light. They've got two full lengths, which are great. The other one is called Summer Fences. I think they broke up in 2011 or 2012. Uh, This band is out of Chicago. Really good stuff. So enjoy this. And I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.